This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. So went the opening song from the hippie musical Hair in 1967. When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets. Love will steer the stars. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Well, did it dawn? I'm Stephen Coates and this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. As I speak, it may be the age of Aquarius, but it is certainly summer solstice in the Northern Hemisphere, at least. 8,000 people gathered at Stonehenge, the mysterious prehistoric temple on the Salisbury Plain, to welcome the sunrise this solstice. Lots of other people were doing the same thing around the British Isles and in many other parts of the world. Continuing hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years of celebrations and ritual, perhaps. But the sun was only rising, astrologically speaking. Astronomically, it was just that the Earth was rotating. And the summer solstice is just the time when one of the Earth's poles has its maximum tilt towards the sunlight. Astrology versus astronomy. Why are we talking about this? Well, this episode is devoted to the subject of the pagan. And for many pagans, the summer solstice is one of the most important days of the year. And many of those 8,000 people who gathered at Stonehenge, I suspect, might describe themselves as pagans of one sort or another. And part of a counterculture or a re-counterculture that has its roots going back to the pre-Christian era. And we're going to take a whistle-stop tour through that counterculture today. But before we do... Have you got a moment for me this midsummer? Have you got a moment to let us know what you think of the Bureau of Lost Culture? For we are gathering reviews for the next stage of our journey into the underground, into the upside down, in this quixotic attempt to build an oral history of counterculture. Send us an email, bureauoflostculture at gmail.com. Let us know what you've enjoyed, what you'd like to hear about. And thanks to Ronnie, to Richard, to Kev, to Johnny, Jill and Jess for their kind words, support and suggestions. Now, back to it. For more than a thousand years, a diverse range of peoples, from Ireland to India, from the Andes to Australia, have been labelled pagan by the Christians who encountered them. Since the 20th century, new groups have emerged, Wiccans, Druids, Neo-Shamans and Heathens, who openly call themselves Pagans. But who are these Pagans? And what do they believe? Which gods and goddesses do they revere? Do they worship nature? Do they practice divination and magic? Well, I'm glad that I don't have to answer those questions because I have with me today, as my guest, somebody who I believe can. He is Ethan Doyle-White the author, amongst other things, of Pagans, a visual culture of pagan myth, legend and rituals, just published by Thames and Hudson. It's a wonderful, visually stunning and fascinating encyclopedia, if you like, or a survey at least, of this strange thing called Pagan. And I hope it's going to answer some of those questions for us. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture, Ethan. I've got to say, you don't look like a pagan. Particularly, <laughs> I was, wasn't quite sure how you were going to appear. Well, I don't. I don't really self-identify as a pagan okay. myself. Um, mm. I'm very interested in modern paganism mm. and a range of related mm. religious traditions. Um, so uh, I'm coming at it from a scholarly perspective, sure. primarily. But someone who is sympathetic. I'm yeah. not. Uh, yeah. I'm not antagonistic to well, the material I describe. Yeah. Well, in your little bio at the back of the book, this is what it says about you, Ethan Doyle White. Holds a PhD, so you're actually Dr. White. Yes, yeah. Dr. White, <laughs> Dr. I'm going to refer to you as now on. Uh, in medieval history and archaeology from University College London, and there's research interests in both European pre Christian religions and modern paganism. So you've got a bit of history there, and that, and that I'm assuming is what brought you to pen this work, mm. you know, and it's quite a substantial piece of work. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I had this sort of these twin interests in pre Christian and indeed early Christian religious practices. Um, that's what my PhD is in, looking mm. at uh, religion in early medieval England, Anglo-Saxon England. Um, but my side interest was very much mm. in various new religions, especially modern pagan religions. Um, so I'd mostly actually written and published mm. academically on that latter subject. 
Um, and then I wrote a, a, a one book on Wicca, and then I did a sort of edited volume also on mostly magical and uh, modern witchcraft editions. And then Thames and Hudson asked me, would you do this book on paganism more broadly? And just out of interest, I mean, what brought you to, do you know why you had that interest in the first place? Oh, that's always a tricky one, isn't it? Mm. Determining why anyone is particularly interested <laughs> in anything. I mean, certainly as a kid, I loved a lot of this kind of Arthurian mm. legend mm. and mythology and fairy tales. And it's quite apparent from a lot of, sort of ethnographic studies that actually most modern pagans have that same feeling. They right. loved all these things as kids. Right. And then as they're older, they begin to be attracted to religious movements that mm. um, emphasize those sorts of things. So I share a lot of the sort of interests. Um, and I got, particularly in my teenage years, pretty interested in Wicca, pretty interested in modern paganism. Um, I came from a background where a lot of my family were involved in certain esoteric traditions, not really modern pagan tradition, but certain forms of esotericism. So for me, it wasn't a totally alien world space. Um, right, esotericism such as? as In this case, particularly more things like spiritualism okay, and yeah. uh, new yeah. age practices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I sort of initially came at it as quite interested on a sort of practitioner level. By my early 20s, it had simply become an academic interest. Um, as I said, a sympathetic academic interest, but an academic interest nonetheless. I mean, as we were saying earlier, it's quite interesting. We're recording this on the summer solstice. Yes, yes. And um, just this uh, yesterday, you know, 8,000 people mm. gathered at Stonehenge yeah. to, to welcome the sunrise. Yeah. It's, there's something going on. Strong, well, strong, there's always been something going mm. on for sure, but there's something of the moment of, in this mm. subject, isn't there? Mm. I think and it's something that's been building for decades. You know, mm. it, it's not new. Um, it's been building for at least a century, in a sense. This mm. sort of, um, in a broad sense, romantic interest in the pre-Christian past mm. um, that you begin to see filtering through, for instance, certain types of Victorian and Edwardian literature mm. coming into the 20th century. It's resulting in actual practical forms of modern paganism and now pervades... Um, so much popular culture in yeah, totally. to other people. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, as I said to you earlier, you know, I spent half my time in Findhorn, yes. uh, <laughs> you know, which is a sort of centre for yeah. new age and pagan activity. Yeah. I'm not actually in that bit of Findhorn myself, mm. but um, it's very strong up there. Yeah. And we were talking about, you know, mid Wales and stuff, mm. and in the West, it tends to be more so. Mm. But we're going to sort of circle back to those mo that modern uh, pagan mm -hmm. uh, movements that you talked yeah. about. Um, but also, I wanted to sort of put it in the context of the other thing we were saying, which is these pagan traditions, I mean, there's multiple ones, obviously, mm. but as being quite countercultural. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, there was a flowering of interest in them in the counterculture, mm. you know, big C, 50s, yep. 60s, and 70s, evidently. But um, they were countercultural or are countercultural to an extent because they were made so by mm. Christianity, right? Mm. I mean... The, the term pagan, we're going back to it, is, is it's a, I say original definition, but certainly the dominant definition for over a thousand years has been an explicitly Christian one, used from at least, we know from at least the late 4th century. It's a term Christians use to refer to people who do not worship the God of Abraham. Mm. So in that sort of 4th century Christian worldview, you have Christians worshipping the God of Abraham, personified through Jesus Christ, Jews worshipping the God of Abraham, but not personified through Jesus Christ. And then everybody else, and everybody else is a pagan. It's this real rhetorical divide between us and them. Yeah. And of course, Christianity is a missionizing religion. It's going out there right. with the intent of basically replacing all those what they understand as pagan religions. Yeah, um, because so pre-Christian, um, which is you know the phrase that you use quite mm. a bit, it's not like those people went around saying, we're pagans, by the way. No, it was like the, the, the word didn't exist, of yeah. course, right? It, I mean, as a word, mm. what is the actual etymology of it? Well, it, it comes from Latin, which is obviously the, the dominant language of the Roman Empire. And Christianity comes from mm. the province of Judea in the Roman Empire. And actually, in, in Latin, uh, a paganus... Um, was a person who lived in the the Pagus, which is a sort of rural district. So mm -hmm. in Latin, it meant something like country person, a rustic, maybe a bumpkin, maybe a yokel, may, may have had some negative 
traits as, as opposed well. to metropolitan elites yeah. or yeah, sophisticates. Yeah. How it then became an explicitly religious term, we don't know for sure. And you have various ideas outlined by different classicists and historians. Um, one that's associated, for example, with the French uh, classicist Pierre Chauvin argues that at some point uh, the idea is that the Pagani, the people of the place, the people of their local area, worshipped the deities of their local area, whereas the Alieni, the people from elsewhere, worshipped this incoming god from Judea. The Christians, right. So it yeah. potentially became a way of differentiating people worshipping gods of the locality people worshipping a god from elsewhere. That's one of the possibilities. I mean, that's quite an interesting phrase, though, isn't it? The people of the place, mm. because certainly for some traditions, place, pagan place, yeah. in fact, actually is very important. Isn't mm. it? The spirit of the place, the genus yeah. loci, and, yeah. and that, you know, that yeah. kind of personification of even particular rocks and trees mm. and streams and springs. And, and, stuff and we like. see this quite strongly in certain regions of the world where Christianity and other Abrahamic religions never really got a major, major foothold. I'm thinking in particular of Japan, huh. where you still have sort of the kami spirits seen as inhabiting many spaces of the landscape. But that was only, as I mentioned, that was only one possible origin of how the term pagan became this Christian term. The other possibility actually derives from a slightly different meaning of the word. Um, by the late second, third century, it seems that the word uh, Paganus had also come to mean civilian in the sense of a person who wasn't a member of the army. It's likely that this is a term that actually came about through Roman soldiers. You know, they were not stationed in Rome, they were stationed out in the provinces, and so they came to differentiate themselves from the people around them, the, the Pagani. Christians, early Christians, thought of themselves as Miles Christi, soldiers of Christ. So they saw themselves mm. as part of Jesus' army. If you're not part of Jesus' army, you're, you're civilian. a civilian. Right. That is possibly one of the other <laughs> ways in which the term pagan eventually becomes a sort of religious term. I wanted to drop in something as well, which you said earlier, which I thought was quite interesting and quite worth remembering, which is that when Christianity first got going, it was a cult, right? It was, you know, depends what you mean by the term, but yeah, but it, it, I mean in the old-fashioned sense <laughs> yes. of the term, it was a cult, yeah. and it was actually countercultural itself, yeah, right. And the actual mainstream culture, which was at the time, mm. you know, Roman Empire, you know, and their sort of polytheistic yeah. beliefs. But the, but Constantine, the emperor, mm. converts to Christianity, mm -hmm. and that's when Christianity really starts to blow, right, and yeah. it becomes imposed. Is that right? Yeah, uh, ultimately. Um, under particular Constantine's successes, mm. people like Theodosius in particular, actually begin legislating against non-Christian rituals. So it does begin to be imposed. And this process of Christianization and how it takes place in different regions is still an object mm. of much debate and speculation among historians and archaeologists. Because um, Christians might say... Um, well, you know, people accepted it willingly mm. and, and, and eagerly because mm. it's the truth. Mm. Whereas there's, you know, and that may have been the case in some mm. parts of the world, I'm not sure, but um, also there's a lot of so fairly brutal mm. suppression, right? Yeah, I'm thinking of Charlemagne's mm. campaign against the Saxons being a classic example of where there was a lot of bloodshed through this sort of process. Um, but again, there was probably a mix of the carrot and the stick, mm. and in different places at different times, uh, different processes of conversion became dominant. And of course... We don't just get people converting and then becoming Christians as we would now understand them. It's a process of acculturation that takes decades, right. centuries. Um, for example, you don't really get the parish church system in England until centuries after the initial conversion. Um, what you probably would have had is priests coming to your local area and speaking to the people at a local point in the landscape that was, you know, people assembled at, at a large tree, at a well, at a large meeting house. You know, the sort of Christianity of the late antique and early medieval periods is probably quite different from the Christianity as we imagine it from 
the late Middle Ages or the mm. early modern period or mm. certainly our world today. Right, so in a way it would be a, more of a, an accretion really, a kind of yeah. sympathetic sort of more organic thing rather than the, some sort of conquerors, religious conquerors yeah, coming in. and it had to adapt to the context in mm. which it found itself. And hence, itself. hence those churches and chapels built on sacred mounds. I mean, even in, even in St. Pancras, there's uh, St. Pancras churches said to be built on a A, a lot of this mountain. stuff is... Um, legend perhaps mm. more than i mean the, the the accounts for example of saint paul's cathedral being built on the temple of diana mm. a lot of this stuff is i mean it's not impossible but a lot of this stuff is um perhaps more legendary than clearly mm. historic there are examples in which a church has been built on what could have been a ritual or ceremonial site before it but there aren't that many of them known and in those cases, there's sometimes been so many years, so many centuries, sometimes even millennia, between it being a ritual site and the church being built, that it's probably not a meaningful mm. connection. I mean, there's a classic case is uh, Knowlton, Knowlton in uh, Dorset, where you have um, an earth henge uh, monument, earth and henge monument, that is sort of late Neolithic or potentially Bronze Age. In the middle is a medieval church. And you would often see, particularly earlier in the 20th century, people cite this as evidence that the Christians were coming in and using a pre-Christian ritual site. But realistically, this was a ritual site thousands of years before the church was built. We have no idea that there was any sort of continuity of practice over that period. Or you, as you say, the early priests came to the village you know, and picked a significant mm. spot yeah. to preach from yeah. uh, you know a mound or a hill yeah. or, tr or under a big tree yeah. then that itself might become the place where the formal chapel gets built and then the church then the cathedral possibly whatever, yeah, yeah possibly yeah. and of course those meeting places may have had pre-christian ritual significance mm. anyway mm. it's often very difficult to tell because we are dealing with a period of time yeah. when records are uh, yeah. but I, was, I suppose in, that's in terms of place but in terms of time or mm. in terms of the calendar right mm. So, you know, we're talking that we're, we're right at the summer solstice at mm -hmm. the moment, midsummer's day. If you're in the northern hemisphere, I have to keep saying that because, of course, in yeah. the southern hemisphere, it's midwinter's yeah. day, it's the shortest day of the year. Um, but I'm assuming that Christmas Day itself, you know, I, I mean, when I was a kid, brought up a Catholic, by mm. the way, um, you know, we see the picture of the, of the sort of, of, of the crib, Jesus mm -hmm. in the crib, you know, with snow on the roof, mm. even though it's in, in, in Judea, seems yeah. <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> But um, there's no evidence that, you know, even if Jesus exists and he was the son of God, mm. etc., that he was born on 25th, 25th of December, is there? No, but that no. happens to be very, very close to Midwinter's Day, which was yes. this very significant pre-Christian feast. Right? It, there's been a lot of argument that um, the dating of uh, Christmas comes into force in Italy and in... Um, in relation to the celebration of Sol Invictus. Um, Sol Invictus being the, the, the solar deity. Yeah. So there is a likelihood, I wouldn't say go so far to say it's proven, but there is mm. a, a clear likelihood that Christmas is there at that date in the year because of its associations with a particular solar deity. Mm. I mean, also it makes sense, doesn't it, if you think about it, because... You know, you've got like generations, hundreds of years of people celebrating things at a certain mm. time of the year. You know, mm. midwinter makes sense, doesn't it? Because mm. you're celebrating the fact of the return of the sun, etc., yeah. which has got, you know, life-enhancing slash threatening yeah. consequences yeah. depending on what happens that year. Um, then, you know, people are used to celebrating at that time of year, so they'd be reluctant to give it up, you imagine, you yeah, know, because I, there's a new God in town. Exactly. And you can you can see this in our society today. The vast majority of people living in the UK celebrate Christmas. Mm. A very, very large proportion <laughs> of those people are not really Christians. Mm. They mm. still right. celebrate Christmas. Right. Yeah. The festival continues, yeah. even if a religious meaning is sort of dropped, because people enjoy festivals. They do. Um, yeah. And they celebrate Halloween, which is all souls, and um, mm. nobody mm. really thinks about that. Um, that's absolutely true. And of course, Easter, I mean, I know all this because mm. I was a proper Catholic. It, the, 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 the dating of Easter each mm. year, I mean, everybody 
well, maybe everybody isn't aware of this, but Easter moves around each year, yes, and it's yeah. all to do with the cycle of the moon, yeah. right? <laughs> and Easter, Ostra, the yeah. egg, you know, yeah. we eat chocolate eggs and stuff. <laughs> so the eggs, and I don't recall the egg being a Christian symbol particularly. That's I think the egg like is just a um, pre-Christian symbol. I don't know if it, yeah, an egg is an egg. <laughs> <laughs> They're ubiquitous in any society okay. that eats... Yeah. <laughs> and uses you know, eggs. Yeah. It's a springtime symbol. Mm, I don't think it's right. necessarily always helpful okay. to say this is yeah. a pre-Christian symbol right. okay. because any more than a tree or something is inherently mm. pre-Christian mm. because it's just ubiquitous in our lives whether mm. we are members of a pre-Christian society, a Christian society, a post-Christian society. Mm. Eggs are still important. Sure. Trees are still important. Yeah. You know, the moon things. is important, yes, of course. Exactly. And of course, exactly. Easter's, the, you know, the date of Easter is determined by the moon. Mm. So... Um, just to go back to the book, and I will say about Ethan's book as well, is that it's lavishly and gorgeously illustrated. Um, we're talking about the history here, but the history in this book is this incredible wealth of, of uh, genuinely beautiful images. Um, so, Ethan, just to go back to the story. So, Christianity comes, and we, and we are talking about, you know, Northwest Europe mm -hmm. largely, right? Okay, mm -hmm. I mean, not, as you mentioned, Japan and... Uh, other parts of the world. So Christianity takes over mm. and defines this thing called the pagans, mm -hmm. which is everything, everybody else, right? Mm. Uh, including the Muslims, I think, for a while. It, it, yeah, there are debates over <laughs> Some sources will say, mm. well, we kind of accept the Muslims are monotheistic, so they're not pagans. Mm. But you still see references that refer to them as pagans. Right. I mean, even, even among Christians themselves, yeah. they sometimes accuse each other of being pagans. This is very evident during the Reformation when all these Protestant reformers are pointing at the Catholics and saying, you've got lavish churches, your <laughs> ceremonies are really ornate, you've got all these you're, saints, you're pagans. Yeah, your um, priests dress up in these fancy yeah. garments and stuff so like that. Yeah. It, it's almost, I mean, this is, it, it's important to bear in mind that the word pagan in this context has this kind of pejorative meaning. Mm. You know, it's not being used to say something nice about somebody. Mm. It's, used, it's a term to denigrate them, mm. to say... You are idolaters. Mm. You are living in error. Mm. You are making this great mistake about who you are worshiping. Um, I mean, we've talked about this before on this show. These yeah. a lot of these terms. I mean, punks, obviously. Yeah. Uh, beat nicks, mm -hmm. of course, got a kind of communist thing going on there. Yeah. And, and and even the hippies, it was these were all and goths. You know, these were all kind of terms of abuse. Yeah. <laughs> to some set, which later became adopted as badges of honor. Yeah. As this isn't, and that's what has happened with uh, pagans Absolutely, more recently. Yeah. Um, but you talk about the fact that Christianity has come to completely dominate um, Western and Northwestern Europe. And then this thing happens in the Renaissance. Is that the, maybe maybe coming from an aesthetic mm. uh, background, is, is that there's this huge interest, mm. literary interest and visual interest mm. in the classical era in particular, these in these pre-Christian traditions, right? Mm. And that is this way that this kind of countercultural thing flourishes back mm. into the culture right mm. i mean a lot of say classical literature had been known in the middle ages the middle ages wasn't completely oblivious to these sorts of things but it really was in the sort of 14th century in italy where you had the renaissance humanists who really begin to say look at all this classical culture look at the literature look at homeric epics look at virgil's aeneid look at ovid's metamorphosis look Isn't at the statues great? look right? at the statues the ceramics you know. why don't we start making statues like this again mm. why don't we start depicting mythological scenes on our mm. art again and hence you have things like botticelli's birth of venus mm. you have these you know really remarkable works of art coming out of particularly italy depicting pre-christian mythological scenes the society is still very christian mm. and you're still getting plenty of christian imagery being produced at the same time but there is a renewed respect particularly among a lot of kind of socioeconomic elites for this kind of culture and it starts in Italy but then it spreads and you also begin to see over the centuries um, people beginning to take an interest in the pre-Christian religions of other regions of Europe as well so in the 17th century for example uh, Icelandic medieval manuscripts mm. recalling the stories of uh, what we now call Norse mythology begin to get translated into modern European languages. Thus, growing numbers of people across Northern Europe are exposed to the stories of Odin and Thor almost for the first time in centuries. Um, right, so not, in the south, where, you know, say in Italy, they, know they were living 
inside the kind of classical legacy, weren't they? You know, in Rome, they were surrounded by it in Rome. So they were more familiar with mm. that stuff and going back to Greece. Mm. But the the the, 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 so the Norse stuff had mm. been sort of rather forgotten or suppressed mm. entirely, hadn't it? And then, mm. so that starts to come back too. Yeah. yeah. And then certainly by the 18th century, this Norse material is beginning to be seen in the visual culture, in the literature. Mm. It's beginning to sort of infuse, particularly again, educated sectors of society. Often, of course, depicting these Norse gods in classical clothing. <laughs> so there is still this engagement and this influence uh, from sort of more Mediterranean societies. Um, and then pushing into the 19th century when you have the Romantic movement, uh, you begin to see similar things happening in other regions of Europe as well. Renewed interest in uh, linguistically Celtic pre-Christian peoples, mm. uh, linguistically Slavic, linguistically Finnic. You begin to see that interest develop as well. And that's often tied in with sort of burgeoning cultural nationalisms and the emergence of, of particularly folkloristics or folklore research as a discipline. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit before we, because we're about to step into the 20th century, yeah. and, you know, the, the, yeah. the, new, the new pagans, and there was two things that I, I, I occurred to me, which was that in terms of the arts, right, mm -hmm. I mean, I just wondered whether, you know, the these pre-Christian traditions, you know, the Hellenic traditions and the, the, the Roman, the pre-Christian Roman traditions in terms of the arts, they had a lot more to offer than the Christian art did at the time. I mean, they could be more erotic, they could be mm. more sensual, right? Yes. They had more sort of scope in some way, didn't they, to reflect mm. modern life as it was then. Mm. Um, that was one thing. But also the other thing which happens, of course, is that you get the kind of second wave, which is the colonization of the rest of the world by yes. the, the European mm. states, including the Brits, mm. obviously, you know. And um, we're in Africa, we're in the Americas. Yeah. You know, the Spanish and the Portuguese are in... The Americas, yeah. right? And, um, you know, the, Brit the British are in India, mm. right, as well, where they're encountering new sets of, mm -hmm. inverted commas, pagans, pagans yeah. right? And so that has a, that, there's a, but there's a, a different thing happens then, isn't it? Christianity isn't so successful in kind of like taking over. Yeah, I mean, in, a, in one sense, it's a very much a rep repetition of what we saw before in mm. previous centuries in sort of Europe and North Africa and parts of West Asia, in that you effectively have Christian Europeans entering a new place, being um, confronted with this huge plethora of, of different religious traditions, not really understanding them, but saying, oh, these are all pagan, or mm. in, a, in an English synonym, these are all heathen. You know, it's, it's that kind of approach. I mean, we have these 19th century sources where British colonial uh, writers are going to India and they're calling the native people Hindu pagans. Mm. And they're calling what they're doing Hindu paganism. We today would, of course, just call it Hindus and Hinduism. But this is very much the word, the lexicon that they were familiar with and that they'd inherited from centuries before. So they're going ahead with that. But yes, they were less successful, in a sense, than a lot of their forebears. Because while uh, sort of Christianity has been, and through other forms that Islam has been very successful in proselytizing and spreading in many other areas, rarely have they completely extinguished the pre-Christian religious traditions. Mm. I mean, if you look in the Americas, yes, many indigenous communities actually are predominantly Christian, but you still do find traditional beliefs existing, traditional practices being carried out, whether that's among you know, the Mapuche or the Quechua mm. down in South America or the Lakota and the Salish or whatever up in the north. Same goes for sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. You have a country like Nigeria where Christianity and Islam are the largest religions, but these traditional religion, religious systems persevere among, you know, you have Yoruba traditional religion, for example. It still exists. Mm. And also it affects the kind of Christianity that you get mm. there too, right? I mean, you get all these all sorts of strange kind of hybrid things mm -hmm. springing up. One of the things which has been a significant, I think in recent years, um, you know, because of the whole drug culture in Mexico is the the cult of Santa Murta, oh, yes. you know, the yeah, skeleton Santa saint, yeah, you, know, yeah. um, you know, worshipped by the cartels, yeah. you know, these bloodthirsty, brutal yeah. killers, who, you know, who yeah. pay obeisance to this skeleton yeah. saint who's basically the Virgin Mary, but as a, as a bony version of yeah. the Virgin Mary. Yeah. Right? Not just the cartels, often the police who are tasked with confronting the cartels <laughs> right, as well, because right. Santa Muerte 
is a deity for people who are on the front line in some sort of sense, mm. who live a risky life. Mm. Um, it, certainly there's arguments that have been produced that Santa Morte has some sort of link to uh, pre-Christian Mexican deities. However, the visual imagery seems to be much more informed actually by the European idea of the Grim Reaper. Mm, totally. So, totally, yeah, totally, yeah. But in a feminine yeah, form. Yeah, um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. as you said, all sorts of unusual syncretisms happen all over the world all the time mm. in various forms. Mm. Um, we have no idea, have we, Ethan, what would have happened if you know those pre-Christian traditions had not been vanquished. Mm. You know, either in, either in, in from the Roman Empire or in later colonialism. Mm. Um, but it, it does sort of go underground and then re-emerges as through these means, doesn't it? Through either through subversively through affecting Christianity yeah. and Islam, or through the arts mm. and culture, which I think mm. is quite interesting. And that brings us, in a way, back to the late nineteenth and the twentieth century, mm. where which is what you talk about as the sort of the renaissance of this new paganism, mm. right? Maybe you could talk a little yeah. bit about that. Well, you certainly one of the important things about certainly by the 19th century, is that churches are, in a certain sense, slightly less dominant over governance than they were before. You're still talking about Victorian England, for example, as a very Christian-majority country. Christian churches still have a lot of uh, influence, but it's not a case where the dominance is total. You can begin to have dissent emerging. And you can see this, for example, through various sort of occult groups, effectively esoteric groups that begin to develop uh, in in Britain and sort of Anglophone Western countries. The two big forces here are the Theosophical Society mm-hmm. and then the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And I wouldn't go so far as to call these modern pagan groups, but they are beginning to uh, sort of critically reappraise pre-Christian religions in a positive way. You have, for example, the first temple of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which opens in the 1880s, is called Isis Urania. Mm. Isis, of course, being a pre-Christian goddess from Egypt. One of Helena Blavatsky's books, Helena Blavatsky being the founder of the Theosophical Society, one of her books is called Isis Unveiled. Mm. Again, there's an invitation And let's not forget the kind of, um, the craze for Egypt Ology in nineteenth yes. century uh, yeah. London uh, and well, British um, Egyptomania, you know, Egyptomania yeah. you know, and funeral architecture and stuff. Yeah, right? I mean there are some fantastic mm. buildings that have been mm. built under that kind of influence. Mm. Um, and of course, just just class uh, neoclassical architecture again, something of the sort of eighteenth nineteenth centuries mm. that's reflecting these kind of interests. And it's all coming together. All of these different factors are coming together to result in uh, the emergence of small groups that begin to actively venerate deities mm. taken from pre-Christian traditions of sort of Europe and neighbouring areas. Areas where these traditions were actually extinct mm. um, but people are looking at the historical evidence for them and saying, oh well we're going to worship that deity again. Mm. And that begins to come in in a small way in the early 20th century. Yeah, so Britain in particular because of the kind of Celtic heritage as well. And there's, there's, I, I think I think not, not so much actually Britain mm. initially for mm. some of these groups. Britain certainly becomes the epicentre of a lot of it in the 1950s. Mm. But in the earlier part of the 20th century, there seems to be more going on actually in Germany and Austria. Okay. Where you begin to get... Um, these early, usually ultra-nationalist, Volkish groups are very interested in reviving, as they would see, ancient German deities for the German race. Right, and, and the Wagner and the... Um, the, the, the drawing of Wagner, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and that sort yeah. of stuff. Um, you then begin to get other groups popping up here and there um, in parts of the linguistically Slavic world, in, in sort of areas like, like Britain, for example, someone like Alistair Crowley mm. and the religion he establishes, Thelema, mm. It's not always seen as straightforwardly modern pagan, but it's certainly invoking pre-Christian deities, especially mm. from ancient Egyptian sources. Issues in divination as well. Right? Yes. Through although, tarot. Yes. Although I would say that tarot is popular among a lot of pagans, but mm. I wouldn't call it a modern pagan practice mm. because okay. it can be found being performed by a lot of people for a lot right. of different reasons. Yeah. But even even then, there was, I mean, a couple of uh, episodes ago, we had uh, Annabella Capone came in mm. to talk about the community of Cabo Kift. Yeah. Didn't necessarily call them new pagans. Mm. Um, in fact, they may have called themselves Christians. Yeah. But 
but it had these kind of pagan elements, which yeah. was maybe we could talk a little bit about what that means here. Yeah. I mean, a massive subject, obviously, but yeah. it's this kind of reinterest in nature, isn't it, as yeah. well? And the it, land. Yeah, the, and the connection of the land to the distant past, I think, right. is part and parcel of it. You know, there are people playing in the modern pagan ballpark, even if they're not modern pagans themselves. Mm. They're clearly displaying many of the same interests that modern pagans display. So you have groups like the Kibbo Kift, like the Order of Woodcraft Chivalry. Mm. Um, and then you also get a lot of poets and writers, again, not people who would be modern pagans explicitly, but who are clearly very interested in things like an enchanted landscape or certain pre-Christian deities. Look at the wind and the willows. It has right, a scene right. in Pan. which Pan appears. Yeah, right. you know, this sort of stuff is actually becoming more and more evident, certainly in Britain, in the Edwardian period into sort of the 1920s as well. Also, um, you mentioned earlier the town of Glastonbury, mm. um, which had this kind of Arthurian connection, mm. which is, you know, Arthur is sometimes described as Christian, but not always. Mm. Um, the woman Fortune, you know, she kind of started to transform Glastonbury itself into what it's become, mm. not just the site of the festival. Mm. There's no coincidence that the festival's there, yeah. but it's become a kind of centre for um, yeah, you pagans, right? Yeah, I mean, this this the woman in question was well, her real name was Violet Firth, but she went by the name of Dion Fortune. Here is a sidebar about the Wicker Woman. It's important to note, thankfully, that women play a much greater role in the new pagan and possibly the original pagan religions than they seem to have done in the Abrahamic religions. Dion Fortune, born Violet Mary Firth in 1890, was a British occultist, ceremonial magician, novelist and author. She was co-founder of the Fraternity of Inner Light, an occult organisation that promoted philosophies which she claimed to have been taught to her by spiritual entities known as the Ascended Masters. A prolific writer, she produced a large number of articles and books on her occult ideas and authored seven novels, several of which expanded occult themes. Like Gerald Gardner, she was born to a wealthy, upper-middle-class English family. And after time spent at Horticultural College, she began studying psychology and psychoanalysis at the University of London, before working as a counsellor in a psychotherapy clinic. She became interested in esotericism through the teachings of the Theosophical Society, before joining an occult lodge led by Theodore Moriarty, and then the Alpha A Omega Occult Association. She came to believe that she was being contacted by the Ascended Masters, including the Master Jesus, and underwent trance mediumship to channel the Master's messages. In 1922, along with fellow member Charles Loveday, claimed that during ceremonies they were being contacted by Masters who provided them with a text, the Cosmic Doctrine. With Loveday, she established bases in Glastonbury and Bayswater, London, as Ethan described. During the Second World War, she organised a project of meditations and visualisations designed to protect Britain. She began planning for what she believed was the coming post-war age of Aquarius, but sadly died in 1946, age 55 of leukaemia. Dion is recognised as one of the most significant occultists and ceremonial magicians of the early 20th century. The fraternity she founded survived her, and in later decades spawned a variety of related groups based upon her writings. Her novels in particular proved an influence on later occult and modern pagan groups such as Wicca. She would have considered herself a Christian, Right. But, again, had these sort of sympathetic interests, particularly at certain points in her life, with pre-Christian deities. Mm. She, for example, wrote a novel, she wrote a number of novels, but one was called The Goatfoot God. Mm. Again, this interest in Pan that we saw in The Wind and the Willows, and that was very pervasive in a lot of Edwardian culture. Um, and, you know, her, her group, the Fraternity of the Inner Light, they, are, they were London-based, but they had property there and in Glastonbury. And Glastonbury had certain esoteric associations, actually going back even further, but drawing on the legendary complex mm. that existed around Glastonbury, associating it with the burial place of King Arthur. 
and that had existed since at least the Middle Ages. Mm. And there's the there's, to try it with Christianity too. Is there is this legend that Joseph of Arimathea yes. comes to these shores, yeah. and um, you know, in uh, Blake's and did and those, did those feet, feet in, in ancient uh, times. Blake was born around the corner from where we are now. Yeah, well, try it. Blake, of course, in a sense, he's, he he wouldn't have described himself as a pagan. No, but uh, but actually, he is a kind of figurehead mm. for some of the new pagans, right? I mean, Blake has inspired a lot of a lot of people. Mm. I think he is probably one of the Perhaps one could call him a mystic. Mm. Um, certainly, he has been of great interest to a lot of people with esoteric mm. interests of various kinds. Mm. Christian esotericism, right. but also modern pagan yeah. esotericism as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, cycling forward um, to the 50s, yep. um, and as we mentioned, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which of course is a, the name of a Pink Floyd album, <laughs> um, straight, straight into into the heart of the counterculture with the Big C. Mm. So it's given a kind of big shot in the arm, isn't it? Here yeah. too, there's this, there's suddenly like a great deal of interest. There's an interest, reinterest in Crowley, who'd sort of yeah. fallen from from favour, as it mm. were, and uh, the counterculture itself and, and hippie dumb and, and all that came mm. with it, the psychedelics. Uh, suddenly, it you know. The, the idea of the new age starts to emerge mm. as well, doesn't it? Which is connected with all this stuff, isn't mm. it? I mean, you certainly get this sort of broad milieu or whatever you want to call it, zeitgeist, whatever you want to mm. call it. Zeitgeist, and yeah. And modern paganism is one current within mm. that. I mm. mean, it actually, certainly in the British context, uh, with the emergence of Wicca, which right. is now the largest of the modern pagan religions, probably the best known, that is certainly coming to public awareness in the early 1950s. Gerald Gardner, the man we often refer to as the father of Wicca, publishes a book in 1954, Witchcraft Today, another book called The Meaning of Witchcraft in 1959, appears in the press quite a lot. So even in the 1950s, he's beginning to become a, a sort of publicly recognisable figure. And his Wiccan covens are being formed in various places around the country and then actually in Australia and the US as well. Particularly in the US, right? Yes, eventually. I mean, it's a much bigger country, much bigger possibilities mm. in that sense. But this is something that obviously appeals to a lot of what you might call hippies or people with mm. countercultural interests. And you have other movements that are also burgeoning around this time, like the Earth Mysteries yeah. uh, phenomena, which I wouldn't say is a modern pagan phenomenon itself. But it's clearly, again, it's in the same ballpark. Earth There's Mysteries is like a reinterest in, say, the notion of ley lines, like symbolic yeah. lines of power or force connecting different significant yeah. places across the landscape. And also, you know, the the reinterest in prehist prehistoric archaeology of these yeah. islands, you know, the stone circles, the, yeah. the henges, the mounds, mm. you know, there's a kind of, there's a, that all that stuff is coming back yeah. big time, isn't it? Yeah. 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 A, a shared fixation is perhaps too a strong mm. too strong a word but in some people's cases yes it was mm. a fixation mm. but certainly a shared interest in the ancient past mm. so this is something that you find very much in earth mysteries also something you find very much in uh, modern pagan religions mm. also something you find recurrent in a lot of what you might call new age, new age yeah. movements yeah, yeah. Um, so there is this sort of shared idea that's evoked by a lot of different people mm. involved in a lot of different things um Ethan, I wanted to ask you to just define a few things because in the book you talk about, um, actually you talk about in America how, how you know how much stronger it is there. But mm. you divide there's these kind of broad divisions. You've got the Wiccans, the Druids, the Heathens. Yeah. <laughs> so just give us a quick sort of uh, rundown of what you understand <laughs> those things to mean. Well, I would say each of those is another as a different modern pagan religion. Wicca typified by the fact that practitioners also consider themselves to be witches. Mm -hmm. uh, their theological perspectives are quite diverse, but will usually involve a goddess with or without a god, celebrating seasonal festivals called sabbats, of which there are usually eight each year, including midsummer. Mm -hmm. um, and their rituals usually take place in a circle and are usually described as being magical and thus involve things like spellcasting. So, in a sense, Wicca draws on both traditional imagery and stereotype of paganism, but also traditional imagery and stereotypes of witchcraft, and merges the two. Modern Druidry takes a different stance in that uh, 
its practitioners adopt the identity of the Druids. Now, the Druids originally were these sort of ritual specialists, priests, whatever you want to call them, of certain linguistically Celtic societies during the Iron Age. They were suppressed by the Roman mm. military as a potential threat to Roman imperial control. But modern Druids adopt that image. They adopt that identity for themselves and are typically very uh, nature-centred mm -hmm. in their practices, um, usually performing rituals outdoors, and they also typically place a great deal of emphasis on poetry and the arts as a means of um, uh, ritual expression. Heathens um, are people who venerate the deities of linguistically uh, Germanic pre-Christian societies. So people like the Norse, people like the early medieval Anglo-Saxons, um, deities like Odin and Thor, these sorts of things. Mm. Um, not all favour the term heathen. Some prefer to refer to it not as heathenry, but as Arsatru or Odinism mm. or Fawnseether. Yeah, there are different terms used, but heathenry is nowadays it's the most commonly used one. And of course there are other modern pagan religions as well, smaller ones and others that are more popular in other countries. Mm. For example, in a lot of linguistically Slavic countries, you have uh, Rodnovery, which is an attempted uh, reconstruction of the religious traditions of pre-Christian uh, Slavic peoples. Mm. I mean, you say that's what they've all got in common, is, is that they're trying to res resurrect something of these lost pre-Christian yeah. religions. Yeah. That's the thing that they kind of Yeah, share, that's, that's share what makes them a family, yeah. as I yeah. see yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is these kind of common themes like personification of objects and places, mm. pagan places and nature. Um, but I've got a question for you, which is that, you know, uh, and I had an interesting experience recently, mm. which is that I was up at Jodrell Bank. Now, oh, yeah. Jodrell Bank is the site of the Lovell Telescope. Mm. It's a huge radio telescope in mm. Cheshire. Mm. And there's an exhibition centre there, and it's quite amazing because it puts Jodrell Bank, you know, the radio telescope, mm. into this lineage of solar observatories, including mm. Stonehenge, including, I think, Mays Howard, including the one in Ireland, Newgrange, mm. you know, and, of course, the Mayan temples and mm. stuff. And I thought that was, that was uh, you know, a wonderful thing to do. Mm. And they've got all these incredible images of pulsars and black mm. holes and other galaxies and stuff. Beautiful things, right? But what I realised when I was looking at these beautiful images um, is that these are actually metaphors. They're not as these things, black holes and pulsars and redshifts are, because mm. we can't actually perceive them. What they've actually done is taken radio waves mm. and then they've transposed the wavelengths into a band that we can actually see mm. visually. So they've got wonderful colours and they look mm. amazing, but they don't look like that, right? That's a transposition. Mm. In other words, it's not the way things are. It's it's a version of that we mm. can understand. It's a metaphor, mm. right? Well, the sun as a god was a metaphor, right? Mm. I mean, we know the sun isn't a god. We know it's a ball of gas, right? But when the sun rises, if mm. you're sitting on a beach, particularly, you know, with somebody that mm. you like, you feel something, mm. right? You don't, your response isn't to a bowl of gas <laughs> and it's not even mm. rising. It's the earth that's tilting, mm. right? You still have, you still have a kind of pre-Christian, if you like, a, a mm. pagan response mm. to it, right? But what I'm getting around to sort of saying is that we know that these things were metaphors mm. and the sun isn't really a god. And we can also acknowledge that, you know, the way that pulsars are shown is also a metaphor, that mm. our metaphor, our latest version of reality, mm. right? But isn't it a bit silly to sort of revive the Norse gods? Isn't it a bit silly to take the metaphors of the Greek gods and and sort of, you know, still or try and re revitalize some ritual about them? I mean... Everyone should be free to do as they will to some extent. That is my uh, my perspective on I, it. I think so too, but I'm just asking. It's Because at one level, I'm very glad that people are doing this stuff. Mm. But there's another part of me, maybe a little bit of a cynical part of me, which says that, yeah, but it's a bit silly. I mean, some practitioners very much do see these mm. as metaphors, as symbols. Mm. Often they consider them as archetypes, particularly from archetypes. a sort of Jungian, right. Jungian perspective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And will say, well, actually, okay, you know, the god Ra, the god Thor, mm. the god whomever it may be, doesn't literally exist, mm -hmm. but it is a symbol that is useful mm. to me and my group in our ritual. Right. Mm -hmm. Other side of the coin, there are people who, in the modern pagan communities, who will say, no, this deity literally exists. I am in communication with this deity via mm. 
processes of divination or whatever it may be. So you do get diff- very, very different theological beliefs within these sorts of communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and often the thing that brings them together is more sort of ritual practice, you know, shared mm-hmm. ritual mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. You can have three different people taking part in the same ritual who have mm-hmm. very different understandings of, what's going of on. what is going on. Mm-hmm. And, and that is often quite mm-hmm. a, a common thing within a lot of men. Yeah, I mean, and by the way, you know, I find the Abrahamic God as silly myself, you know, belief in that. It's like the tooth fairy for me personally. You know, it's like we don't believe in that anymore. But, some people um, do. Some people do. Actually, that's true. Sorry, if, you're, if, you're, if your tooth's just fallen out and you're expecting to get a pound if you put it under your pillow, I apologise. And Santa doesn't. Santa does exist. Let's say he does. Um, but uh, you're right. I mean, for sure I respect them. And I think what you're saying there is, is that there's different degrees of belief in the literalism of the mm. of, of these of these deities now listen i've had experiences myself which are, are mysterious mm. and seem to have connections with like non-human mm. intelligence and consciousness you know as well so i'm not i'm certainly not um taking a secularist mm. point of view on that and in fact you know there's the whole area of psychedelics and of course and you might call the shamanic aspect mm. of rave culture, mm. which came to this country in the 80s and 90s. Mm. Along with it, a lot of the things which we associate with uh, maybe in traditional societies or new pagan societies, which is the festivals, mm. right? The traveling communities, mm. right? Tied up with music, gathering mm. in large quantities, shamanic experience of kind of mm. losing yourself in altered states, right? So. There's that whole thing which doesn't necessarily have to tie itself to belief in any particular deity, Mm. right, but has something of those pre-Christian traditions too, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is, again, a lot of these sort of communities, things like the New Travellers, things like, as you said, the Ravers, there are transmissions of influence from the 60s, 70s counterculture, Mm. but also things like, as I said, Earth Mysteries. The Mm. influence of Earth Mm. Mysteries on the New Travellers is quite evident, for example. So there are, again, all these sort of this web of links between all these kind of countercultural groups that exist and the way influences can pass over the generations and be transformed in doing so but continue to influence people. I mean, the New Travellers being quite a good example of people who were very interested in sites like Stonehenge Mm -hmm. and in solstice rituals at sites like Stonehenge and would often be there performing, or or perhaps performing is the wrong word, but they were gathering there for Mm. these solstices alongside modern pagan druid groups that were performing rituals there. So there are a lot of people kind of Mm. active in this broad milieu, Mm. um, definitely. And there were certain individuals definitely who were involved in some of these subcultures who one could say are modern pagans. I mean, when you're going back to kind of rave, you have the slightly, um, not, not necessarily rave itself, but groups like uh, the Temple of Psychic Youth, mm-hmm. which is a, you know, overlapping with rave, if you could say. And some of the people involved in that certainly had definite mm. modern pagan interests. People like Genesis P. Orridge, mm. people like going into uh, John Balance of Coil. Mm. You know, these are people clearly interested in these sorts of uh, religious perspectives yeah absolutely too and of course you know and, and you know more recently even in to the context of film you know the, and and all the cultural stuff there's the folk horror yes thing, you know yes. revival right yeah. <laughs> i mean the wicker man yes. is actually showing this weekend at the yeah. barbican with a live score and there's a you know and um uh, so it's it's in the culture still isn't it yeah. in fact it's possibly even becoming less countercultural and more sort of mm. cultural as we could we could sort of say and this weekend, of course, is Glastonbury Festival, which mm-hmm. neither of us are at, um, <laughs> interestingly. So it's you, one might even say that the pagan is alive and well in our culture. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, ever more so, mm. I think, in a lot of ways. As, uh, as Christianity is declining in terms of its actual number of adherents in basically every Western society, um, we are finding ourselves in an increasingly uh, religiously heterogeneous world mm. you know in 50 100 years time we're going to have a society where most people probably don't identify as religious this is not the same as saying they won't have religious spiritual supernatural beliefs mm. but they won't identify themselves as a particular member of right. a particular tradition 
with probably my, minority groups of Christians, Muslims, mm. and of course pagans mm. and, and you know, Jews and Buddhists and what have you. So we're going to end up in a situation that in a certain sense is more like that of the Roman Empire mm. <laughs> than of these Christian majority societies mm. we've been used to in mm. this part of the world for well over a thousand years. Mm. We're going to end up with a polytheistic society, basically, a monotheistic society. Uh, possibly. I think it's going to be certainly a very mixed society mm. with a lot of people believing a lot of very different things mm. to one another. I don't think, I mean, I think the actual stats on it are that, you know, when polls are taken about mm. who believes in the supernatural, it's a very much the case, I think. You know, the majority of people have got some sort of supernatural belief. Exactly. What's yeah. quite interesting in Findhorn, what happened is that in Findhorn, you know, there's the Findhorn Foundation, which is mm. the UK's oldest alternative community. Now, late in the late 50s and uh, early 60s, the people who founded it, who were kind of broadly sort of New Age Christians, mm. Mm. well, they're actually a UFO cults, mm. and they, they, they believed that, you know, extraterrestrials were going to land on the shore mm. just outside my house. <laughs> Um, and they didn't, as far as we we're aware. And then their, their beliefs about extraterrestrials morphed into this belief in devas, local mm. nature spirits, and mm. they, they were in communication with them, and that's why they were mm. able to make these beautiful gardens. And the most recent kind of evolution of that metaphor is what they call the Findhorn angel, mm. which I don't think they regard as a sort of actual literal being, but mm. it's more like the genus loca, the spirit of the place. And in my own experience, actually, I'd say that in the urban context here in London, there has been of the recent decades, really, mm. is this sort of what you might call psychogeographic mm. um, yes. movement, which is actually pagan in a sense. It sees significance in place, mm. yeah. significance in roots, you know, yeah. and the, the echoes of time, that time yeah. is not linear, and that um, there is something significant going yeah. on in these streets of saddle London. Yes, yeah, and I think in many ways it's, the psychogeographical movement is almost a lot like the Earth Mysteries mm. movement that we talked about that was coming out of kind of the 60s with people like John Michel, mm. although the psychogeographical sort of approach tends to be a bit more urban-oriented. Mm. So, and then again, certainly there are people of, mm. who are involved in modern pagan traditions who also have these kind of yeah. psychogeographic yeah. interests, yeah. much as they did in the 60s with Earth Mysteries interests. Yeah. Um, there's always a lot of overlap when you're dealing with these kind of yeah. counter-cultural subcultures. Ethan, thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you for having me. Well, folks, by the time you hear this, I just realised that, in fact, summer solstice will be over. Today was the longest day and the shortest night of the year here in the north, and the sun was at its highest position in the sky. At the North Pole, there was 24 hours of daylight and none at all at the South Pole, and that doesn't sound much fun. Now in the North, the nights are getting shorter. And to be honest, I quite like that. I'm more of an autumnal guy, put it that way. I don't really know what to wear in this hot weather. In six months' time, it's the winter solstice, December 21st for us. Much more importantly, that's my birthday. Mark it in your diary. I always felt a bit ripped off when I was a kid when people said, oh, it's the shortest day of the year. Now, quite glad. Well, whatever the season, we will be keeping recording stories, digging for these buried treasures and celebrating counterculture with guests like Ethan. I'll put a link to his wonderful book, Pagans, in the show notes. And, of course, we'll keep celebrating and digging and recording with your help. Join us at bureauoflostculture.com. You'll get our newsletter and various bonuses that are coming down the road. And don't forget to write to let us know your thoughts, suggestions, and a review of the show. That will really help us as we move on. Bureau of Lost Culture at gmail.com. Thanks to Rachel, Esmeralda, and Adrian at Sova Radio. Thanks again to Ethan. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thanks to you for listening. See you, hear you next time for more tales from the counterculture. Let's finish with a tune by our old sponsor, the artist known as The Real Tuesday World. This is Slinky 